this is David Krulowicz, and welcome to Moving Block, a podcast about cities, transportation, and anything else on my mind. You can subscribe to my show in iTunes by typing Moving Block in the search field. This podcast is also available on SoundCloud and other podcasting platforms. Did you know that there are 47 acres of city-owned land in the middle of Queens sitting unused since 1962? This is what's known as the former Rockaway Beach Branch of the Long Island Railroad. Many groups have been discussing whether this asset should be reused for future rail service or turned into a linear park. Today I sit down for a group interview with representatives from the Trust for Public Land. I'll be chatting with Adrian Benepe, former New York City Parks Commissioner, as well as Andy Stone and Carter Strickland, who are deeply involved in trying to turn this asset into a city park called the Queensway. Without further ado, Adrian, Andy, and Carter. You guys all work for the Trust for Public Land. Can you describe just generally what uh, the Trust for Public Land does? The Trust for Public Land is a national nonprofit organization um, that as the name implies, it seeks to put land in the hands of the public into public use. Uh, the organization has been around for close to 50 years. It actually was an outgrowth of a, of a piece of the Nature Conservancy at one point. And it has two main focus areas. One is rural, large-scale rural land protection and conservation. And the other is generally smaller, but sometimes large-scale park creation in cities. Uh, park creation and trails, greenways, have all been part of the Trust for Public Land DNA since the beginning. And in fact, the uh, Trust for Public Land has helped create a number of the most prominent rail trails across the country uh, where disused railway rights of way have been turned into bicycle and pedestrian greenways. Uh, The most recent of those in an urban setting is just recently in Chicago where we turned something very, very much like the Rockaway Beach Branch or like the High Line, an abandoned freight rail line has been turned into an almost three-mile linear park and greenway um, with the, in a very similar manner, the Trust for Public Land was brought in to play a lead role by a local friends group, the Friends of the Bloomingdale Trail. And uh, we worked with the City of Chicago, its Sparks Department, its DOT, and the mayor and at a cost of about $90 million, we're able to reconstruct this abandoned rail line as a really magnificent linear park and greenway. Um, and it was done in you know, really quite rapid time. So it just shows that the Trust for Public Land has the ability and the history of doing conversions of abandoned rail lines into multi-use parks, trails, and greenways. And so we're, we're perfectly equipped to do something like the Queensway. Queensway is a... Uh on a former uh, rail right-of-way called the Rockaway Beach Branch. What is the history of that um, branch? Or what, what, why was it, why is it now unused or that sort of thing? To the best of my knowledge, the last train ran there in 1962. And well before that, the line which used to go from Penn Station to the Rockaways, Long Island Railroad line, um, long before 1962, um, the line suffered from a number of challenges. Um, there were some fires. I believe there was a bridge out. There was actually um, low ridership. And I think going back to the 50s, the city and the state were talking about, like, you know, can we keep this line going? The city started to express some interest in subway service on the, the southern part of it, south of Ozone Park 
which ultimately became the A-Line, and a determination was made that um, um, there'd be a kind of a complex series of events that led to, um, starting in the 1950s, formal abandonment of the Carter as a rail line, I believe uh, through the Interstate Commerce Commission, um, and the city taking over the southern part. So there's a kind of a long history of decline, establishing the subway on part of it, leaving this uh, three and a half mile section, which we now think of as the Queensway Carter, leaving this abandoned, um, both legally abandoned and also uh, legally abandoned before 1962 and abandoned as far as uh, unused. How did the Trust for Public Land get involved in the Queensway project? When we were approached by community residents uh, almost seven years ago, um, different groups of people along the corridor were kind of finding each other at that time. Word was spreading in the um, five or six neighborhoods along the Queensway that um, there was a potential to create a Greenway a linear park. Um, so people in uh, the neighborhoods from Forest Hills to Ozone Park were coming together and at that time they were reaching out to us and so we helped them together form Friends of Queensway. We together came up with the name. We didn't have the name. Um, and uh, we discovered people who had made attempts in, in earlier years. It was called Rockaway Beach Branch Greenway. People mm -hmm. who had been working with Community Board 9 in previous years to start something. So it was really um, grassroots people reached out to us. We uh, were in the midst of the Chicago project. We had confidence that we could take a lead role in any number of aspects including um, we, with the emerging friends at Queensway, decided that a, a plan was needed. And so in addition to working with them to build the Friendsway, Friends of Queensway group, we also took the lead in seeking uh, state funding for uh, our planning grant, which we received in 2014. Why should the Queensway be built as opposed to a subway or LIRR extension? When we started looking at this seven years ago, it had been 50 years since a train ran on the line. There had been various looks at the potential for some kind of rail use on the line. Um, it's safe to say that when the city decided to develop the air train running through Jamaica Station that this line was considered. If in fact this line made sense for access to JFK, that was obviously the ideal time to put it there. So there had been a number of different studies of using this line for rail, um, but 50 years had passed. Many proposals, studies, nothing seemed to take hold. Communities grew up along the lines. Um, despite the fact that there aren't a lot of residential encroachments, there are various institutional uses, leases on the line. Um, so as the community grows up along the line, um, no viable proposals emerge for redeveloping rail. Community residents are concerned about a hazardous, unsafe condition on one of the larger swaths of city-owned land in the borough. Um, it struck us that it was time to think about another use. There's a study going on right now by the MTA, uh, yet another study of uh, 
rail activation in particular with a view towards a one-seat ride to JFK. Um, we're interested to see how they're going to address a number of challenges, I think, as Andy mentioned. One of which is that uh, the MTA state agency um, does not control any of the land here. Um, it's all city-owned. Um, that is a, a very significant uh, challenge, to say the least. Another one is the neighbors, of course, that are that are close, and how compatible a, you know an active train line can be uh, to this. And you know, I guess a third one is a question of priorities and timing. So we all are familiar with um, the various challenges that the MTA faces in meeting a state of good repair on its existing lines. Perhaps down the road, uh, enhancing uh, stations with uh, what some call cosmetic, what some call user-friendly, uh, commuter-friendly uh, attributes. Uh, but these are all signal changes, uh, uh, underwater tube uh, renovations, making it resilience-proof. Uh, there were some investments made after Sandy, but it's by no means complete. So there are a number of, of challenges just to keep the existing system running at, at uh, in able to handle peak ridership uh, or and attracting getting back to peak ridership to uh, deal to think about a new uh, extension of the line uh, and whether this is the highest and best use of their time so I, I think uh, when uh, a study comes out one thing we're going to be looking at very carefully is the timing of any proposal, uh, because I think it's safe to say an asset like this uh, to go unused for decades more with the hope that someday something useful will be happening. When you have a plan and a design in hand right now where the community could see a benefit in, in two years, you know, it's going to be a... Uh, interesting proposal to say the least so what would be the time she described timelines what would be the timeline let's say you got all the money right now what would be the timeline to build out the Queensway interestingly enough in the case of the 606 in Chicago where we figured it would be phased and a phased project of this length might take 10 years 606 Mayor Emanuel said let's do it all at once and so it went from design through construction to opening in three or four years. In most cases, projects like this are phased, and so this is a 10-year-plus project once. Um, you know, once you uh, finish the first, you know, once you get the first shovel in the ground for the first phase through opening the whole thing is, is you know, realistically 10 years. And I would add that if you look at some of the other great parks in New York, most of them were phased. Hudson River Park is probably going on 20 years now. Brooklyn Bridge Park is 10 years. Central Park took 25 years from the first uh, shovel in the ground to when it was really truly finished. So 10 years would actually be pretty quick. The High Line has taken close to that to get where it is. Um, but, you know, look, if all the money were put in the budget, if they said here's $150 million, have at it, you could do it in three years, uh, in theory, three or four years. Uh, the other thing I'd point out in terms of the the issue of rail and alternative uses, if you look at what are the most likely rail uses, and you can start to rule them out. So is the MTA going to re replace heavy rail access to the Rockaways? No, that's not going to happen. We can rule that out because 
that bridge across Jamaica Bay services the A train. They're not going to take away the A train and replace it. You mean with commuter rail? Commuter rail, yes. Yeah. They're not going to bring commuter rail back to the Rockways. And you know, one simple reason they're not going to do that is they're just going to look at the likelihood that the Rockways is going to be underwater in 50 years. You're not going to build a new rail bridge to, to a sandbar that will be underwater in 50 years. So let's rule out that option. Um, so then, you know, could you use it as part of a JFK single seat ride? Yes, it's one of five options. It's probably the fifth of five options. And there's all kinds of implications to running that from JFK up into the main line, um, where you'd have to disrupt mainline service to, to bring that service in. So there's no easy, everybody thinks, oh, we'll just use it and we'll have instant airport access. No, you won't because you're going to be disrupting some other form of access because that main line is already at capacity. So it's there are kind of romantic notions of bringing back commuter rail to Rockaway and reliving the glory days and we'll finally solve the one-seat ride, but this is the least likely alternative for those things. And finally, may I point out as the former Parks Commissioner, uh, as Carter pointed out, not only are all 47 acres owned by the city and the MTA would have to buy them, but seven of those acres are mapped parkland. They would have to go through parkland alienation, which would require finding a new seven acres somewhere else and getting a state legislature vote. And a number of elected officials have said, and I quote, over my dead body will you bring back rail in this backyard. So you're going to have tremendous, even though there's some political support for the idea of reactivating rail, there is an equal amount, if not more, uh, opposition to um, reactivating rail along that corridor. But that was that was the original intent of of the city buying the rail line, right? I mean, there are Bellmouth at 63rd Drive on the Queens Boulevard line that were eventually going to cut down, but they just never got it going? Or Well, the city didn't buy it. It was given by the Long Island Railroad to the city. It was just so I could take this, take this thing off our hands. We don't know what to do with it. Uh, but there's there's no appetite among the northern Queens residents for reactivating rail literally through their backyards. The city has been discussing spending upwards of $2.5 billion on a rail line in Brooklyn and Queens streetcar. Why, why wouldn't the city spend money on this rail line that was already has a right-of-way and is already not ready to go but already exists? We haven't studied the Brooklyn Queens uh, uh, BQX in in detail, but um, you know the premise there is that it's going to uh, fill a need that's not otherwise met. You know, I, my understanding is that that's still uh, in the planning stage, and uh, you know, obviously, a lot of things get worked out when they start dealing with uh, how do we move water mains, how do we um, deal with street user conflicts. Uh, and the like. Here, you would have to make the case that existing uh, subway lines, LIRR lines, and the like serving the population um, are in fact uh, not being met in such a way that would justify an investment versus uh, the significant parks needs and the likelihood of, of either one happening. The other thing I'd point out is there, there are alternatives. If you say we need this because it will help get Queens residents more quickly to Manhattan or more quickly to other subway lines, a lot of that need can be met. We'll see how much of it will be met by the new select bus service, but you could go from select bus service. Which You're is saying on Woodhaven Boulevard. On Woodhaven Boulevard. 
Select bus service is kind of the least effective of all the alternatives. Could they do, uh, you know, bus rapid transit with dedicated lanes and platforms and loading and things like that? So, you know, you could spend billions of dollars building rail service, which will carry barely anyone, or you could spend a fraction of that doing uh, bus rapid transit with dedicated lanes. And also, frankly, put some of that commuting on bicycles. Um, so, you know, it's... Look, we're all, there's no greater fan of, of mass transit than trust for public land. We think it's an important part of the solution. But, you know, frankly, I will think I'll be eating my hat before BQX gets built. It's a great, fantastic vision, but it lacks a great deal of practicality. And you could do what it wants to do for a lot less money. So uh, some of the people that really kind of are the most fervent uh, supporters are People from the Rockaways, elected officials from the Rockaways, Philip Goldfeder, I don't know if you know who he is, Gerald Nadler is in favor of the rail line. What, what, why should people in the Rockaways support this project? You know, um, I, I don't think you can expect everybody to support every project. You know, the, there's an old saying that you know, all politics are local. Of course, the local elected officials are going to support the interests of their community even if it's against the interests of another community. And that's just the way things. So if, in the same way that a, an elected official, in a responsible way, advocates for his or her constituents in the Rockaway, that brother or sister elected official in Northern Queens will be advocating just as strongly against that and saying, you know, not in my backyard. Um, so uh, you can't fault they're terrific people. You can't fault them for wanting to represent that. But the, the reality is, if you start to look at what's the density of population and what's how much population will be served, you know, th funny things happen in politics. Uh, the city's paying for a very expensive ferry to bring people from the Rock Rockaways to Manhattan and heavily subsidizing those rides. Is it, is it fair compared to getting people from Eastern Queens into Manhattan? Who knows? But it's, it's what they do. But... If you were to reactivate rail service for the benefit of a few hundred thousand people compared to doing something for the benefit of millions of people, you've got to really do a, you know, what's the greatest use? And that's where people like the mayor and the city council have to make the tough decisions. And that's why local elected officials don't really carry the day. So what is the general design of the Queensway as opposed to something like the High Line, which everyone knows? Well, I mean, you know, one big difference is that it's designed to be used and used by children and other folks. So it's more uh, like a, the 606, as we mentioned, in Chicago or other uh, Beltline in Atlanta where uh, be actively used for bike recreation. Um, there's some passageways. There's two different types of uh, design elements. One are passageways used for linear recreation. Think about jogging. Think about people walking. Think about people... Um, biking, all sorts of abilities. We've been able, it's, it's big enough in many parts where you can have two fast lane and slow lane, if you will, uh, so that we minimize user conflicts. Uh, and then we have various activity nodes at points where it branches out or there's some more space. Um, so, you know, in a way, it's uh, we're taking advantage also of, of two uh, kind of unique features in the Queensway. One is the fact that um, as a railroad cut, which has to maintain a, a relatively flat grade through a varied landscape, 
parts of it are a viaduct, as you might see with, with the high line. Parts of it are um, on a berm, and parts of it are a ravine. So it does uh, have some nice, pleasing variety. Um, the other thing it has are 60-year-old trees on site, so it's already feels like a very rich canopy and, and a world apart, a nice haven already that we just have to groom a little bit and, and pull out. So I guess, you know, I've, I've walked the right away, and so you would basically cut down the trees that are blocking the, the passageways or, or bike paths, whatever you call Not it. Not necessarily. Um, our uh, designers that we've primarily used so far, D-Land, really are looking at places where the pathway could wind around some of the mature trees. So, um, you know, the Carter is it points pretty wide, although the flat part is narrow, but then it grades down. So there's a lot of trees that are not quite in, in the path, close to the walking and biking path that could be retained. And then even the walking and biking path, where possible, will wind around some of the mature trees that, that uh, we'd hope to retain. You know, you mentioned the, the high line, and of course the high line is one of the, it's not the first, by, by no means the first rail trail. There have been rail trails for 40 years now in America. Uh, but it's one of the first urban, the first transformations of abandoned urban infrastructure into a new paradigm of urban park design. And it's more like a ramblus in the sky than a park. It's where people go to walk and sit, and that's pretty much it. You can't ride a bike. You can't even walk a dog. So You might you, not even be able to walk sometimes. You can barely walk sometimes. <laughs> you need a ticket to get in. I, uh, I sometimes refer to this as son of Highline, or uh, we, I also refer to it as Highline on steroids. What do I mean by that? Compared to the Highline, it's, three, it's uh, more than twice as long. Uh, it's three and a half miles compared to a mile and a half. It's also seven times the area. So there are almost 47, there are 47 acres within the footprint of the Queensway compared with seven acres of the High Line. And frankly, it'll cost a lot less to build than the High Line cost. Um, it'll probably be half the cost for seven times the space. So there are a lot of compelling reasons to do this. Um, and it will bring a, a, a park to a very badly underserved community, particularly in the Southern End and Ozone Park, where ironically, despite the fact that the neighborhood has the word park in its name, there are almost no parks. How would people access the Queensway from the Regal Park area? So, um, we might have to define exactly where you mean. So the northern part. So there's a in in, yeah. in the in the right of way. There's yeah. an underpass. Yes. Would that be Would that be integrated into the park, or is that not so, being discussed? So one of the areas that uh, our plan does not dig into because it was a little beyond us at the time, is that very northern end where the O'Rockaway Beach train went under the Long Railroad Main Line. There's some, some engineering issues there that we haven't grappled with yet. So as to how it will connect at the northern end eventually, we hope that that rail tunnel can be reused and people can get on the Queensway through the tunnel north of the Long Railroad Main Line. But we didn't cover that in the plan. That is the ultimate vision. So that's not within the scope right so, now, but that's thought yeah, if, about. If, if you look on the website, you will see that that, that the specific uh, scheme for that has not been established. 
So some of the areas um, where the actual stations are are extremely narrow. Uh, how has that been integrated into the design of the Queensway? There are uh, stair, as you know, there are staircases up from the street that are closed off, and um, there are uh, issues of uh, bike access, access for people in wheelchairs. It's interesting when you visit the 606, um, there's a variety of, of physical and design solutions, including ramps that run, and you maybe, if you could help me, ramps that run parallel to the viaduct and connect with the sidewalk. So there are a number of engineering solutions for some of those tight spaces. Obviously, ideally, there are some entry points, not necessarily where there were stations, like there's a great entry point on Yellowstone Boulevard where there's like a place for an entry park where there's lots of room for a circular ramp up. And the 606 has those. But another place... Like with a switchback or yes. something like that? But in other places, the 606 had similar issues to the Rockaway Beach Branch where there's not a lot of space at ground level. And so, um, you know, I don't know if this works for a podcast. We could share some photos with you that show these ramps that are parallel to the embankment and go down to the sidewalk. Again, you'd have to look at each, each point to see where it would join the sidewalk. But, so there are some interesting design solutions um, to be explored. One of the hallmarks of the 606 was not just that the, the elevated rail line itself was reimagined as a linear park and greenway, but that it also created a series of parked and park light approaches at grade into it. So it, it created a series of small neighborhood parks and playgrounds where the entrances are. So it, uh, there are, will be opportunities at the Queensway to do the exact same thing, to create sort of ancillary amenities at various nodes. And as a result, the design has been divided up into a number of different segments with different names. And many of those segments have things that are associated with them, like the Little League fields at the north end in Rigo Park and the little league fields are further down, um, and a number of other opportunities to have the Queensway uh, go out into the community via park, parks and parklets, and I think uh, um, my colleagues can talk more about those specifics. There are a number of people, especially in Rigo Park, that have built their backyards onto, I guess what you'd say, city property, uh, on the right-of-way. How do you deal with those people in terms of building this out? Aspects of our planning process were specific enough that we were able to look at the footprint of the, um, the city property. And in most cases where people are encroaching on city land, uh, backyards where they are adjacent to an embankment and they're encroaching on the bottom of the embankment, which would um, harmonize with the, the um, Queensway, but is not a needed part of the Queensway. So we have not spotted many places where there's encroachment that would emphatically get in the way of proposed activities. Um, it's not up to us to decide. Ultimately, this is going to be most likely a city decision. You know, there are a variety of encroachments. There are a variety of lease uses. There are leases by different agencies. We've looked at all of them. Um, there are no, we don't see any major property or physical impediments regarding individuals and families 
with encroachments. Again, they're mostly at the bottom of the embankment, and it's not up to us, but when we look at the design for the main corridor, uh, we don't see that as a problem. Can I, let me add to that, because I think, unlike a lot of uh, other rail trails where, you know, one of the first steps is cleaning up title or acquiring title, here the city owns it. So the city owns 47 acres in the middle of Queens. It's an unbelievable opportunity. Um, so we think that that, un unlike a lot of other projects, that you know, at this early stage, um, there's a real advantage to the Queensway and to what this incredible asset that the city owns and needs to make some use of. How do you deal with the parking garage that's at the Forest View Crescent Apartments on Union Turnpike, which blocks the right-of-way? Well, it's not a parking garage. It's a parking lot. So there is an at-grade parking lot, and uh, a good deal of the parking lot is leased um, by the cooperative apartments from the city. There's quite a bit of land there that's leased. Uh, our landscape architects have looked at the parking lot. We've communicated with local elected officials and even with the uh, board of the cooperative that um, we believe that just a n the narrow edge of that property would be sufficient for a bike and pedestrian path and that um, we've done, our designers did a preliminary look and felt that parking spaces could be redesigned and that uh, our hope, our goal would be no net loss of parking, that there is sufficient room there. If you take a close look, there's a, there's a berm that could be cut into and terraced to put part of the path on. So we understand that that's a concern, but we feel that there would not be a loss of parking. What is the estimated cost to develop the Queensway? So our cost right now, again, um, at, you know, we have a planning conceptual level for the whole park, which is um, around $150 million. Um, we have a um, better idea for what we're calling phase one, which is our Met Hub, where we've gone through the design document phase. Um, and that uh, would cost $20 million. So. And for a half, about a half mile with a, with a number of other park uh, amenities built in. I did a little research and, you know, this costs roughly one-tenth the cost of the High Line. Why is that? Or, or even it's half the cost of the 606, which is a similar project you guys have worked on. So why do you guys think that? Well, no, it's, it's, uh, it's more expensive than the 606, and it's roughly, it's a little bit more than half. So the High Line thus far has cost in public and private dollars, and it's not finished yet, $260 million. That is, um, or $240 million. That's $20 million an acre. Well, let me, let me, let me step back. It's, On a per acreage cost, it was almost 10 times for the High Line and almost twice for yes, uh, the 606. Yeah, sorry to be... For a variety of reasons. The High Line was enormously expensive because, um, first of all, they were working in very tight quarters in Manhattan. Anytime you do construction in Manhattan, the costs multiply. Uh, second of all, they had to take an exit. Everything there was on a structure. It was not. There was nothing at grade going through a ravine or anything. That entire structure had to be stripped of everything. So the it's like a big steel structure full of gravel ballast, old wooden ties, train tracks, and all of the pollutants that the trains had left there over the course of 
five decades or so. Um, that all had to be treated as if it were a brownfield, everything carefully removed. Then every speck of lead-based paint had to be removed, and the entire thing had to be carefully encapsulated as they removed the lead-based paint. And then it had to be put back together. It was in very good shape physically. It just everything had to be put. And then an entire sort of very high-end design menu of elements was brought in. The thing is essentially a bathtub. It's a big planter box. They had to be very careful about every element of it. And I also designed everything from scratch. There were no, nothing out of a catalog. Uh, so no expense was spared, and you have a really, a really effectively a work of art disguised as a park. But every time you do that, it's, the, it's just ka-ching, 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 expensive. And everything will be easier, in my view, for something like, uh, like the Queensway. And we, we, we know that because we've done something like the 606 at a fraction of the cost of, of the Highline. So what you're saying is more kind of standard materials, standard parks materials might be used for... Um, I'm, I'm not saying that so much as it's just going to be easier. You have more space in which to work. Everything there had to be craned in and craned out because it was all 33 feet above the ground. And uh, this is lower in most cases, even when it's above grade. Uh, but it's also, it's not surrounded by tall apartment buildings. What types of funding mechanisms do you guys propose to fund the Queensway and operate the Queensway? Right now, it's our hope, and we brought it to this level through the benefit of two state grants. One a planning grant, one, um, well, really, uh, uh, the two state planning grants were the main sources, one for the overall plan, uh, a lot of community input and meeting input and meetings. Uh, another, this design element for phase one, plus um, some funding from private sources. Okay, so philanthropy sources that we brought to the table um, to realize this vision, help create the vision, and start to realize it. Um, really, for a project of this magnitude, while a great deal compared to other park projects around the country, frankly, even in the city. Uh, requires city funding, and that's just general uh, general tax revenues. As was the case beginning with Central Park, you know, we uh, strongly believe and have, uh, you know, uh, data to support that park projects pay for themselves, both return on investment in terms of public health, in terms of uh, property valuation, in terms of uh, general be benefit to, uh, to the city. And I think you could make the case that Queens, it's it's overdue for having a big investment of public dollars in public park projects. And it's, there's, a, there's a broad misunderstanding of the financing for projects like the High Line, Brooklyn Bridge Park, Hudson River Park. There's a belief that these are privately funded. That's not true. Um, there's $160 million in public money in the High Line. 140 of that is city capital dollars. Uh, $20 million is federal transportation money. Then there's money that came through from a, a zoning issue where, where developers adjacent to the high, Highland were forced to pay into a fund for the Highland. That's another $35 million. It's effectively public money. So of the $240 million, most of it is public. Then if you look at Brooklyn Bridge Park and Hudson River Park, both of which have you know, innovative funding schemes for financing their operations, all of the capital money for both those projects came from public sources, city or state funding. In each case, half a billion dollars. So, uh, we just heard that um, the city is going to invest 
30 billion or 30 million or so in a park on the Harlem River a park built on the lower lower east side Manhattan waterfront was 160 million so you start to look at what the city has spent on capital projects and parks all across the city and suddenly this looks extremely reasonable at very low cost and frankly Queens has not gotten its fair share of city capital dollars for major new parks, unlike Brooklyn, unlike Manhattan, and in other areas, and I think it's, it's due. It's so, so one thing I wanted to say, and to, to build on Adrian's point about Queens being due, we, um, Trust Public Land does an analysis of park access. How many people live within 10 minute walk of the park? In general, New York City does pretty well, 97%. But the 3% of people that live without uh, outside of a 10-minute walk from park, are that's 250,000 people. So it's a significant number. Half those folks are in Queens. So there's over 120,000 people in Queens that live outside of a 10-minute walk from park. Uh, compare that to 2,000 people in Manhattan. Compare that to um, you know 12,000 people in the Bronx. So uh, in fact, disproportionately, Queens today has more people living farther from park than any other borough. And we also know that Queens is one of the fastest growing places in the whole country. Um, so Queens needs parks. You know, the High Line got a lot of, you know, celebrity types, high power people, very high rent area, you know, that maybe helped push it over the finish line. Uh, whereas the Queensway abuts a lot of middle class areas. So how do you, kind of uh, help promote or help get people on board to um, get this project going? First, thing, the, the highlight again is, is one of the better known projects like this, but I, I think we could compare this um, with the Bronx River in a way. Uh, the Bronx River and the creation of the Bronx River Greenway and the parks along the Bronx River happened in one of the poorest community districts in the country. In fact, the poorest congressional district in the entire nation is where the southern part of the Bronx River flows through. And you say to yourself, oh, how did that all, the Bronx River has been beautifully renovated, cleaned up, it's got greenways throughout most of its length, and $200 million in mostly public money has gone into turning the Bronx River from an open sewer into a, a pretty clean river with beautiful parks alongside of it in the poorest uh, congressional district in the country. And that's because public dollars were properly allocated for public benefit. And there's no reason why Queens shouldn't get that same kind of a benefit. So, you know, the, yeah, the, 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 high, the High Line is very much an outlier. You had celebrities who helped call attention to it. They have raised $100 million in private money for it. It's completely maintained privately. But that's an outlier, and that we shouldn't think about the Queensway in those terms. It should be like the other great parks that have been built for the city's residents using tax dollars and, frankly, maintained with tax dollars. It doesn't mean that we and others couldn't raise some private money for this, and I think we could. But uh, we should not look at that all park projects should be funded with private dollars. That should be an anomaly, not the rule. When was the last time you guys have walked the elevated section in Ozone Park? Our consultants have, have walked up there, and we've seen uh, videos and photographs. And uh, so our representatives have been up there. I haven't walked up there. Myself, I know that you have. I'm just asking because my, and I'm not a structural engineer, whatever, but it, it seems like there's a lot of work to be done mm. in that particular area structurally. So we had, um, as part of our um, 
planning process, we had a structural engineering firm, Weidlinger, do a planning level engineering report on uh, the viability of the structure for the proposed use. And uh, it came back indicating relatively few issues that have to be addressed, including on that viaduct, to use it as a greenway. You know, they did note that that the, um, the, the garages, the bays underneath, were facing some significant problems and that to continue that use, probably a lot more work was needed. So our initial structural engineering reports suggest that um, a lot of the work needed. I know that there are gaps. I know that there are open areas to fill, but um, the, the underlying infrastructure, um, we're told, of that section is uh, in good shape for a greenway. You know, that was, that, that was built to hold fully loaded trains. So we're, we're going to be building something that holds f fully loaded bicycles. Uh, it's a very sturdily built thing. Uh, there's, there's spalling concrete and there's rusted rebar, but it's, it's more cosmetic than it is structural. And that can be, again, we, we think that our estimate of $150 million is solid um, and that uh, it can be you know, built for around that cost. And um, certainly for, for a tiny fraction of the billions it would cost to reactivate rail service in any way, shape, or form. What are other urban rail-to-trail parks uh, that you would compare this to outside of New York City? Well, there's a, a large number of transformations of not just rail corridors, but rail yards into parks. I mean, you don't even have to leave New York to see examples of where the west side rail yards uh, in between Riverside Park and Hutz River Park were turned into Riverside Park South. Um, there were dozens, uh, dozens of rail lines converted to greenways in, uh, across the country in cities and in rural areas. Uh, one of my favorite rail trails is the Cape Cod Rail Trail, which is 22 miles long. Uh, there's the Minuteman Trail that goes into Boston. There's the Silver Spring Trail that comes in from suburban areas around Washington, D.C. into the capital. Uh, Trust for Public Land is working on a, a ginormous project on the west side of Lake Washington opposite Seattle where we are working on a 42-mile rail trail on the near park as in, a, in combination with a number of partners. It would run through many of the high-tech sector areas and towns and cities of that side of Lake Washington. Um, so pretty much everywhere you look uh, including Detroit, the De Quinter Cut project the Trust for Public Land worked on. Everywhere you look in cities and also, frankly, in, in major rural areas, you see abandoned rail lines being transformed into um, trails and greenways and linear parks. Um, so the, the issue is not so much as, is there a precedent we can look at? It's why hasn't New York caught up with some of the other cities in terms of making a productive use of abandoned rail lines? Yeah, even... Uh Brings to mind, even in Suffolk County, there's something yeah. called Trailview Park, which was an old right-of-way for a freeway that was turned into a linear park. Where, they're what? doing it in places like Buffalo, which is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's an elevated viaduct there. It's part of the Highline Network, they're looking at that. Um, you know, we're... Uh, the Reading Trail in Pennsylvania, which is also a Highline-like project. In, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah, Philadelphia. There's uh, projects up and down Hudson River. Uh, place like Kingston, which is a smaller town that's really kind of turned the corner. Um, is uh, developing right in the middle of town, uh, of course a poorer section of town, um, uh, a linear corridor, we're using a, a rail track, we're going to be involved with them uh, to build out some adjacent parks. So 
I think a lot of communities realize, hey, if we're not going to have, uh, you know, manufacturing rail spurs anymore, uh, we got to make some use of it and it can be brought back into economic productivity again. Uh, often that means uh, recreational rail corridors. And I think if you look at um, just generally the trends in cities, as you know, the good news is that Americans are moving to cities. Cities are growing again after shrinking for many decades. So the challenge has been in many cities, how can you build the parks to accommodate these new residents? And you, there's no you know, unspoiled virgin land, open land waiting to be turned into parks anymore. So you have to look at adaptive reuse of outmoded or forms of production or transit uh, and you know, figure out how to create the new 21st century amenities and all you have to do is look at the Brooklyn and Manhattan waterfronts to see where what used to be hubs for uh, international uh, waterborne commerce have completely changed. The shipping went away from the west side and Brooklyn waterfronts, the commercial shipping, the freight shipping, and has been replaced by parks. And, um, you know, you could sort of say, well, we should keep that for shipping, but the shipping moved. You know, So it's time to look at new uses, and this is what cities, uh, the successful cities are looking at, is how to reconfigure outmoded urban infrastructure and create you know, preferably multiple use. Uh, but you know, cities, if you look at the high quality cities across America and around the world, they have uh, terrific alternative transportation networks and corridors like the city of Minnesota, like Portland, Oregon, like Seattle, Washington, and good, good mass transit. So we, we absolutely believe in tremendous investment in mass transit and also have room for alternative forms of recreation and transit. Uh, for each of you, what is your favorite park in New York State? One of my favorite parks, and it goes back to where I grew up in central New York, is uh, Green Lake State Park. Um, the interesting thing about Green Lake State Park is that it's a, it's a big state park, but for me it was a neighborhood park that was very close by, you could, big sledding hill. Uh, and uh, two very interesting glacial plunge pool lakes that's several hundred feet deep, deep enough so that the layers don't turn over, hence the name Green Lakes. They're very deep green, beautiful, very unique place. I'm going to be really boring and just say honestly Central Park for the incredible diversity of activities and people. And I would uh, say Brooklyn Bridge Park because it represents that paradigm of transforming a dilapidated, um, outmoded urban infrastructure into a spectacular community park, which has a variety and diversity of both uses and users, which is mind-boggling. It is a tremendous success as a new generation of urban park, and it pays for itself through revenue production. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. All right, thank you. It's a pleasure David. to be with you. Thank you, David. You have just listened to the Moving Block Podcast with your host, David Krulowicz. To learn more about the Queensway Project, take a look at their website at thequeensway.org. More info can also be found on the Trust for Public Land site at tpl.org. Check me out on Twitter for the latest updates. Thanks for listening.